come this Lord's Day to continue in our study on the subject, the God of all comforts. This Lord's Day, the subject will be that Christ was tempted like us. But before we have said that God comforts His people primarily by forgiving our sins, cleansing us from all unrighteousness, and reconciling us to Himself. Judgment is taken away, and everlasting life is promised. In Hebrews 2, Christ as God incarnate in human flesh is revealed both as the sacrifice to save His people from the power of death and as the perfect high priest to make reconciliation to God for us. There is a perfect efficiency in Christ as both the man sacrificed unto God to take away our sins and as the intercessor, the priest, to present that sacrifice to God and to plead its efficacy and sufficiency unto God. Jesus in His humanity knows our weakness, our frailties, our temptations. He is at once the offering for our sin and the presenter of that offering unto God. Thereby He makes reconciliation for the sins of the people. Christ had to be made like us, the Scripture tells us, so that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. That means that Christ is fit to represent His people unto God and to represent God unto His people. That's what a priest does. Christ was made like His brethren, flesh and blood, but not by natural generation. Therefore, He was not represented by Adam in the fall but was made like his brethren in our nature, except without sin. John Gill points out that Jesus' sufferings were punishments attended with God's wrath and were meritorious for his people, while none of that is true of his brethren's sufferings. Our sufferings do not satisfy God's punishment, and they are not attended with God's wrath because Christ has taken all that away. Thus the Lord Jesus in His humanity was put to death as a man in our place, judged by God for our crimes laid upon Him, appears before God on our behalf and pleads our cause to Him. In this way, our high priest makes a perfect satisfaction for our sins unto God, thereby making reconciliation for our sins. Christ was tempted by Satan, He suffered in poverty, the neglect of his family, the sneering of his enemies. He patiently bore the disbelief of even his followers. He was deserted by his own disciples and put to great shame and agony at Calvary, on top of which he had our great load of sin laid upon him, and he was treated as guilty in our place by God and punished for our crimes on the cross. Because of Christ's personal experiences as a man, he is able to support and sustain and comfort his people whose trials are nothing compared to what Jesus himself endured. Let us always keep in mind and in heart the reality of our Lord Jesus as our comforting high priest. He is, as the Puritans used to put it, our man in the glory. He is God of God, yet he is our elder brother in His humanity and experience and sufferings. 
Jesus knows by His personal human experience our troubles and trials and temptations, which He suffered for our sake that He might save us and sustain us and comfort us. Pity the Old Testament saints, for they had not yet received such an one as our Lord Jesus. For though Christ is our high priest forever, yet before His incarnation, He had not been perfected through suffering in His human body. Imagine the wonder of it that God determined that the second person of the Trinity must be made perfect by incarnation as a man and by suffering as a man in all the ways that Christ suffered in order for Him to be our high priest. All of that so that Jesus might be made our great high priest. No mere spirit, no mere angel, not even the Spirit of God would qualify for that great post which was assigned to Christ in His incarnate humanity. And so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Thereby Christ is fully acquainted with the sin of His people, having observed through human eyes and heart how sin drags down poor sinners and binds it in slaves and mars us all. He saw its pull on our flesh and its enslaving of our wills. Only that man, Christ the Son of God, is fit to be our high priest unto God to save us and to comfort us. He is the only one found qualified by God to be our sacrifice and to be our priest. Now, I wonder if you've noticed that the writer of Hebrews proceeds in the reverse order that we have followed because he is addressing a particular audience, Jewish believers who are thinking about leaving the Lord Jesus and going back to their Jewish religion with its sacrifices and its temple and its ironic priesthood and all the rituals and the law and the heritage and so forth because they discern that it appeared all they had in Christ was just spiritual. No great cathedrals had been built. No temple. The priesthood was invisible. There were no priests in the early church other than the Lord Jesus. He's our priest. And so what do they have left? Well, they don't have anything tangible, you see. Everything's promised in the future and we've received salvation and forgiveness of our sin now and we have the Holy Spirit with us, but that's not good enough for most people. They want something physical and concrete and tangible. So they thought maybe they would go back to the old ways, the old familiar ways of their forefathers. And so Hebrews presents the perfections of the Lord Jesus and why we should be faithful to Christ and believe the gospel no matter what happens to us in this life. He goes in reverse order, really. He first establishes that Christ is God, ruler of the world, in chapter 1. And then he describes in chapter 2 how Christ is incarnate as man for the specific purpose of dying for us and destroying death, saving us from death. That he had to do that in a human body in order to accomplish that salvation. And then at the end of chapter 2, he describes how Christ is our high priest, not Aaron, not the children of Levi, 
because he suffered in his flesh, yet without sin. That's why he's the high priest. That's why he's qualified to be the high priest. He is God incarnate in human flesh who died to save his people. And because of that suffering in his flesh, without sin, he is qualified to be our faithful high priest. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that Christ is a better high priest than Aaron because the new covenant that Christ mediates has better promises than the covenant that Aaron mediated. Remember the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the rule was if you obey my law perfectly, then you will live. But that didn't work out well, did it? Because no one could comply with the terms of the old covenant. But the new covenant says that God will put His law into the hearts of His people and we will all know the Lord. And He will take away our sin and not remember it against us anymore. And you remember when the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He said that He would shed His blood to execute the new covenant for the remission of sin. So it is by the bloodshed of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, in punishment for our sin, that the new covenant is brought into activity, is executed, because it's the mechanism by which God takes away our sin and remembers it against us no more. Even though we were guilty and subject to wrath, nevertheless, Christ died and shed His blood And that brought into operation the new covenant, the promise that God would change our hearts, dwell within us, and take away our sin and not ever bring it up against us anymore. So therefore, you see, Christ is the high priest of a better covenant, one that can actually cleanse and sanctify those who put their trust in Him as opposed to the old covenant under which no one could be justified or sanctified. Christ is a better high priest because He is without sin, which could not be said for any other priest in the line of Aaron. And then next, the writer of Hebrews describes how Christ has a better sacrifice that takes away our sin, and it never needs to be repeated because He has by that one offering forever perfected those that are sanctified. And finally, the writer of Hebrews teaches that because of all these things, all the saints are invited into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, where our great high priest makes intercession for us forever. And this was not the case under the old covenant. Only the priests could go into the Holy of Holies. But now by the blood of Christ, all of His people are entitled, nay commanded, to come before God and to appear before Him, not clothed in our own righteousness, but clothed in the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness. Thus, the sacrifice of Jesus and His priestly representation of His sacrifice and His people completely replaces the Aaronic priesthood under the Old Covenant. And it replaces the animal sacrifices which could never take away sin. And the entire temple order and the argument of Hebrews is why would anyone want to go back to all that when it could never save those 
who worshipped and followed after that manner. Why would you want to give up the gospel promises and the gospel sacrifice of Christ and the gospel promise of everlasting life and go back to something that was very physical, very tangible, and for a time it was very beautiful. And yet it was merely a symbol or a pointer to what Jesus would come and do for His people. In addition to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, which we covered last Lord's Day, there are at least two additional places in Hebrews where the writer comes back to this theme at the end of Hebrews 2, of Christ, our high priest, being like us and tempted and suffering in His body and therefore being a suitable high priest to save us and to comfort us, to encourage us, to give us grace. And that's found in Hebrews chapter 4 where the writer comes back to this subject of Christ as the high priest. At verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now here the writer is making the point that while earthly priests only ministered in the physical, tangible tabernacle and temple of the Jewish faith, our great high priest is gone into the heavens. He's there at the throne of God, face to face. And He is Jesus, the Son of God. And because of that great high priest and His location and His work for us, interceding for us, we should hold fast our profession. That is, we should cling to our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. We should not turn away from Christ. We should not walk away from the gospel. We should not think there's anything better, more satisfying, more wholesome than the things that we left already to go with Christ. But then at verse 15, he says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You see, that the objection to Christ being our high priest is, well, yeah, but He's God, and He's the Spirit, and He's different from us, and He can't possibly understand our troubles. So the writer of Hebrews repeats in substance what he already said in Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 18, that our high priest is not one that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the exhortation is, rather than leave Christ, rather than overthrow the gospel, rather than go back to that which was physical, tangible, and didn't work. We should rather go toward Christ. We should go boldly unto the throne of grace. We should approach unto God in our troubles, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, grace, of course, is a gift from God to His people. 
It's not something that we earned or that we're entitled to, but we can ask the Lord and He will give us grace to help us in our time of need. So here He is underlining the qualification that Christ has. He has many qualifications, but the one He's focusing on here is that He can be touched, has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities, was in all points tempted like as we are, but He didn't sin like we do. And therefore, He is qualified to represent us to God and to hear our troubles and to support us and encourage us and comfort us that we might receive grace. And we're to come boldly. We're not to be timid. We're not to be afraid because of our sin because He's already paid the price for that. Our sins are washed away, praise God. And we can come before God and we can ask for this help. Note well this statement that we must hold fast our profession because our high priest knows our infirmities and temptations and was tempted like us, but without sin. Do not waver in trust in Jesus because He understands our plight. We sin, but Jesus never did. That distinction is the reason His priesthood is necessary. He needs no sacrifice for sin of His own, for He had none, but He knows how much we need a sacrifice. And that's why He went to the cross. He overcame temptations to sin, but we do not many times, and so He faithfully presents His sacrifice to take away our sin. And He understands our weakness and our failure and our sin. This phrase touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Many people find that a precious phrase, that Jesus is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. It turns out that the Greek word behind that is sympatheo, from which we get the word sympathy, to have compassion, to be touched with a feeling of, to be affected with the same feeling as another, to sympathize. And here is the point that Christ embraces our troubled feelings and sympathizes with them because He confronted them Himself in His own ministry on this earth. And therefore, He feels for us in our troubles, in our temptations, in our trials, in our sufferings. He has compassion on us because He has Himself experienced these same feelings and troubles and temptations, yet without sin. And the fact that He did so without sin does not alienate Him from us. Rather, it increases His sympathy for us. He knows our weakness. He observed it with His own human eyes and heart when He was in this world to see what a disruptive force sin is in the hearts even of people who've trusted in Him. What a disruptive thing it is. And in Luke chapter 4, we read this morning, this extended report of the ways that the Lord Jesus was tempted. Now, He was tempted in many other ways, but I think the three categories of that temptation described by the Gospel writers is instructive. 
It is an example of the broadness, the breadth of the categories in which Christ was tempted. Notice the categories that the Scriptures describe the devil using. First of all, he told Jesus, who was hungry, use your creative power to satisfy your physical needs. Implicit in this is, you're the Creator. You made everything. Don't go on without any food to eat. Just make you some out of these stones. The need for physical necessities like food and water and a place to stay and clothing and some money. All these things are in the same category of physical needs that everyone is familiar with. And in this case, the devil focuses in on one that's probably the most critical to humanity, and that is food. And he says basically, you've got the power. Go ahead and command these stones to be made bread. Now, there was a little bit of a taunt in that. If you are Messiah, then surely you can do that. But the taunt is not primarily in the sneering questioning of the devil that Christ had the power to do that. Rather, the the worst temptation there was to succumb to that desire and need for food and to just go ahead and make some bread out of these stones. But you see, the Lord Jesus in His humanity was bound to depend upon God the Father to provide Him His needs. And you remember in the Gospels, Jesus taught this, that God the Father knew what the needs were for His people. God the Father was the one who provided even the needs for the birds and for the animals and so forth. And how much more would He provide for His own people, His own children, You see, the devil wanted Jesus in His humanity to step away from His reliance as a human being upon the power of God and upon His provision to use His powers of deity to short-circuit that reliance. And after all, you're the Creator. But if you notice, the Lord Jesus never used His creative powers to satisfy his own needs. He used his creative powers to satisfy the needs of others. He fed the 5,000 by multiplying the five loaves and the two fishes. And he, he healed people. And he raised people from the dead even. But this was as a sign of his power and might. It wasn't to satisfy his own personal needs and wants. And so there is a strong pull in all of the Lord's people, the need for things. Sometimes we don't need them, we just want them. But the need for things. And the need for things oftentimes puts us into a situation where we fall into sin, doesn't it? Well, here the Lord Jesus is tested in this broad category and He refutes the devil by saying that we're only to trust in God for our needs. And then the next category, I may not be doing these in the order in which the text that we read this morning went, is to exploit God's promise to Christ to prove your bona fides. You remember there's a promise in the Old Testament in the Psalms that the Lord would not suffer His Messiah for any bone to be broken. 
and that He would give His angels charge over thee to keep thee and to bear thee up in all thy ways, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And so here is a call by the devil for Christ in presumption to exploit that promise to prove that He is the Messiah. Because if you are the Messiah, then it won't do you any harm to jump off the highest pinnacle of the temple. Because God's promised you the angels will bear you up lest you dash a foot against the stone. This, of course, we preached a whole sermon on this subject about the presumption of taking the promises of God and therefore acting irresponsibly because we're just going to do what we want to do and leave it up to God to keep His promise to uphold us and sustain us and so forth. It's like a person who, if God promises to provide them with food, they just lie around and don't work any. Because after all, there's a promise there, isn't there? Well, that's not the way it works. The Lord has means to provide, and one of the means is working. Here the devil wanted Christ to prove that He was the promised Messiah by tempting God, by forcing God's hand. I mean, the point of the promise to Christ is not that therefore He could go around throwing Himself off of high places and then take bows and applause when He sprang up unharmed. That wasn't the point of the promise at all, was it? It was a promise of protection of Messiah. This presumption is a common area in which we sin by not doing those things which the Lord would have us to do in order that His promises might be carried out. And then finally, there is the devil tempting Jesus to worship me as a shortcut to taking up your reign over the world. Because you remember, Messiah has been promised to rule over the whole world, literally and physically, concretely, and many places in the Old Testament. So the devil said, well, you know, right now you're pretty meek and lowly, and you don't have any power to rule over anybody. But I tell you what, if you'll just worship me, I will assign you all of these kingdoms to rule over. And so you can get what you've been promised by an illicit means, which is worshiping someone other than the God of glory. Of course, Jesus tells him that we only to worship God and Him only shall we serve. And the Lord Jesus has been promised this right, hasn't He? So why not seize it? So you see, in all these temptations, there's an appeal there's an appeal made to the Lord Jesus to lay hold of things that He is ultimately entitled to. Lay hold of things He's ultimately entitled to, but do so in a way that is sin. That's the temptation. Now, it's far worse, of course, when we are tempted by things we're not entitled to or things we've been refused by God. In many ways, you see, this temptation of Christ is worse than our temptations because of His greatness and His humiliation. That Here He is, the Lord of glory, the Creator of all things, and He's humbled Himself, and He's now a lowly man, at least that's the way He appears to us, and He is a man incarnate in our humanity. 
And yet he has all of these entitlements that he's had from before the world began. You know, when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of that saga that many of us were glued to over the last several weeks, the trial of Mr. Alec Murdoch. He came from a very privileged family. Generations of sheriffs and judges and prosecutors and lots and lots of money and lots of high-powered activity in his law firm and all. But he got strung out on drugs and that ate up all of his money. And he stole money. And when, when it was about to all blow up, apparently he murdered his wife and his son. You see, there's an example of Someone who thought he was entitled when he actually wasn't. And that was enough, wasn't it? To lead him off into these gross sins and atrocities which now he will be punished for for the rest of his life. But Christ's temptations were worse than that because they were temptations to things he was entitled to and his greatness And yet he had been humiliated or he was humble in his appearance in this world during his ministry. You remember Philippians 2, Paul states that he was in the form of God and yet he thought it not a thing to be grasped hold of to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He did that when he took on himself our humanity at the incarnation. Made himself of no reputation took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And this is at the root of why the temptations of Christ were so sharp. Everything that tempted Christ was a call for him to return back to the way it was before he became a man. Before he joined his deity with our humanity at the Incarnation. And then, of course, Paul goes on to saying, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here is the one who created all life being put to death on the cross by wicked men, but with his own assent, because he laid down his life, no man could take it from him. He told us in John 10. Here is a person who is the maker of life, the maker of all things, and yet in his humanity he is restricted from those things by his Father and by the purpose and plan of redemption which he was here to carry out. And not only that, he becomes a victim of death, as it were, when he was entitled to life. He had done no sin. He was entitled to life Yet He laid down His life for us. He had great power and privilege, and yet He came lowly as a lamb to be slain, the Scriptures tell us. How much you or I would like to escape such ignominy and shame, and we would do whatever it takes to do so. And that's the difference, you see. The Lord Jesus submitted himself to all of those indignities and all of those wants and all of those losses without sin, something that we cannot ever do. How far sinful man must have provoked Jesus 
to commit error and to commit sin during his ministry. Pretty much everything people did around him was a provocation. If you remember, they are always arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Here they are arguing about that before the king of glory. As if they had a choice in the matter. As if they were entitled to it. Their presumption must have been a terrible temptation to Christ to lash out and so forth. I remember one of the first sins I can remember ever committing was when I was three years old. My dad was in the army and we were at Fort Stewart, Georgia, and we went to church one Sunday at some country Baptist church. I don't remember the name or anything. And of course, the preacher greeted everybody on the way out. And I piped up and said something to the effect of that I was going to give up watching Batman on TV tonight in order to come to church. <laughs> like I had any choice in the matter. My parents were going to make me go to church whether I wanted to or not. But the presumption and the pride in that, you see, even at the age of three, and I was not a Christian at that time, although if I had been, I probably would have said the same stupid thing. Looking back on it, I can see the sin of that. And imagine how many people did that in Jesus' day. How they would talk about all the sacrifices they had made to follow Him, for example. They didn't even grasp that though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor. That we through His poverty might be rich. And yet He was faithful to obey His Father and His purpose in the Incarnation, which was not to live high off the hog, to avoid all the troubles, all the slings and arrows of living as a man in this life. And because of all this, because of the way He was tempted in all things yet without sin, He is our faithful High Priest who understands our temptations and trials. He went through them and he watched other people go through them. He watched those other people succumb to them in ways that he never succumbed. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews said, we should go boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. You see, we are not afraid to admit and confess our failures and our sins to our high priest. I think some people who have so-called earthly priests, which the Scriptures do not allow and which are condemned, and they think they can go and say confession to their priest and so forth. And that's not found in the Bible anywhere. Christ is our priest. We're supposed to confess our sins to Him. He's faithful and just to forgive us. And we must not be afraid to admit and confess our failures, our sins to Jesus because He knows them already. Better than that for us, He's experienced them already. And He knows how easy it would be for us to fall into those sins, though He did not. But Jesus understands our weakness and will help us when we cry out to Him. And He will never mock or jeer us in our failures, but He will bring us through one day to glory and to perfection 
when we see Him and we're changed to be like Him. Jesus comforts His people because He suffered being tempted like we are. And around the Lord's table, we celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made. And it's the means by which, you see, He has the power to forgive sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to justify us. To be justified means that God declares you to be without fault entirely. And it's because of Jesus' blood. He took away our sins. He was judged in our place. As Paul says in Romans 3, the sacrifice, the bloody sacrifice of Jesus for our sins is a propitiation Unto God, that means it appeases or satisfies God's holy demands against us in our sin. And that this is because, or this is to permit God to be just, that is, to exercise true justice and to justify, that is, to declare to be without fault those who trust in Jesus. So we celebrate the sacrifice Jesus made for us. And even now, He's seated at the right hand of God, the one who was condemned in our place. He's raised again in power and glory, seated at God's right hand, making intercession for us. All on account of His body and His blood being offered as God's Lamb to take away our sin. And He has the perfect sacrifice and He's the perfect high priest. And we can come before Him and He sympathizes with us. And the best proof of His sympathy, of course, is that He laid down His life to save us from judgment, wrath, and hell forever. And so who can say, who dare say, let us leave off Christ and go back to the old, the old religion that couldn't save, and in the best of times only pointed to the Savior who could save the Lord Jesus Himself. And we eat this bread as a picture of the body of Christ. It's not the body of Christ. It's a picture. It's a reminder. When we eat it, it symbolizes us feeding spiritually upon Christ. How do we feed spiritually on Christ? We believe Him. We trust in Him, in His sacrifice, in His promises, in our very life and hope and joy forever are bound up and tied to the literal physical body that was torn and mutilated for us on the cross and the literal blood that He shed laying down His life for the remission, for the forgiveness of our sins. And these symbols are mere pictures of those things to remind us of the true body and blood seated in the heavenly places now. The sacrifice is there on display in glory. As Revelation 5 points out, the Lamb is wounded, He's put to death, and yet He stands alive before God. If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus and you do not rely only upon His obedience and His bloodshedding as your only means of salvation, then you should not partake of this feast. This feast is the feast of Christ to celebrate with His people the sacrifice that He made. And He is our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the Scriptures tell us. 
So let's give thanks for the Lord's table. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the remission of our sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We thank You He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, as horrible and shameful as it was, and that He could not be tempted into turning away His back to the smiters and His cheeks to them that plucked off the beard, but that He set His face like flint to go to Calvary's cross to save poor sinners. We thank You that we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, that He sympathizes with us in our troubles and in our temptations. Lord, we thank You that Your dear Lamb shed His blood on Calvary's tree to take away our sins, that the life was drained from Him there by wicked men, but with His own consent. He was a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so He opened not His mouth. Lord, we thank You that You laid on Him our crimes, and He patiently bore them in judgment and wrath, and exhausted all the demands of justice on our behalf, and now we're set free. We who've trusted in Him, we thank You that He left us this cup that pictures the blood that He shed for the remission of our sins. And we joyfully partake of it knowing what it points to. That one time in history when the real God-man, the Savior, laid down His life for us and shed His blood that we might be cleansed. We pray You would bless this to our hearts and that we would understand what it pictures and what it points to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's turn in our black book to number 180. Number 180, the Lamb of God, the slaughter led, the King of glory see. The crown of thorns upon His head, they nail Him to the tree. And let's all stand as we sing this song, number 180.